Good. Now I've got a 60-minute sermon for you. Ready? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here we go. I'm gonna, we're going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this whole chapter. I'm not, normally we'd stand for the reading of the word. It's a long one. So I'm not going to have you do that. You're going to get tired. You're going to be like, Chael, come on. Uh, so, so Nehemiah chapter 5. Let me just remind you what we've been doing. We've been walking through the book of Nehemiah for quite some time now, just looking at the way that God used Nehemiah and the people of that time to rebuild the city, uh, the walls of Jerusalem, for the sake of a move of God, so that, that this would be, once again, uh, back in the Old Testament, the, the place where God's presence would come and rest on the temple, and blessing would go through the whole earth, right? And we said, we feel like we're in a bit of a rebuilding time as a church, and there are some lessons that we can learn from what they did to kind of where we are right now, and how we can rebuild it. So we've just been walking through this together, and today we land on chapter 5. So just a little bit of a setup. So this is after the wall has been rebuilt, and now people are starting to settle in after the wall has been rebuilt. So here's what it says. It's a long one. Follow with me. Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our field and vineyard. So this is the, the, the foreign king, not a king over, over the Jews. Although we are of the same flesh and blood, our fellow Jews, uh, and, and, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. This is Nehemiah talking. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and the officials, and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as it is possible, we have bought back our fellow, um, our fellow Jews who were sold to, us, sold to the Gentiles, and now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. Don't you love that? When someone's like, uh, yeah, I got nothing to say about this. That's kind of the moment here. Like Nehemiah is bringing the charge against them and they've got nothing, nothing to say about it. So, so they keep quiet. So I continued because what do you do when no one talks? You just keep talking, right? That's, that's what happens. So, so Nehemiah, so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of, of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are lending to the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them, 1% money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more of them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and I made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. This is like hardcore. Nehemiah does not play it around. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen. And it's like, do they know what they're saying amen to right now? And praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. 
Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over them, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wines of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that in the next couple minutes, you would just guide the words that I say. Lord, let, let them be as close as possible to your words, Lord. Uh, God, not, let me not say anything that's not from your heart. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire me right now with the things that are for your people in this moment in time. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would soften hearts and minds to receive what you have to say in this moment that will form your people into a faithful image of Jesus. Pray this right now in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So that long passage, because I think the, the story is important, uh, that I think this is like such a critical, critical story for us to go. And it really, it should be pretty easy to preach. There is a clear problem and then there is a clear solution in this one chapter. Rarely is the Bible this neat and tidy, by the way. I don't know if anyone ever reads, they're like, um, I'm not sure where this story ends and begins. Like, this one is right here. It's all night neat and tidy for you. The clear problem is the people have been exploiting each other and charging interest when they weren't supposed to charge interest and giving out loans. And in, 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 in the Old Testament within the people of God, they were not supposed to do that. If you loan someone money, it was intended to be charity. And if someone could pay you back, great. But if they couldn't, it was no big deal. You were not supposed to hold it over their head and charge them interest. This was God's way of keeping debt out of, the, out of his people. It's genius. Like, and so the people have not been doing that. And so it's created this incredible problem where there's been ex exploitation to the level of people are now losing their land and so extreme because they don't have anything to eat. They're selling their children in slavery. This is like craziness. I've actually seen this with my own eyes, and maybe you have too. Uh, when I went to India 20-some years ago, uh, it was very common to see young girls especially working uh, for families because they were working as indentured servants in another family. So essentially, someone owed a debt to someone, and the way to pay that debt was like, my daughter will come and work for you and do whatever you need to do. And sometimes this could actually even happen with the local government. Absolutely an awful, terrible practice. But this was very common in the world, and God was like, this is not something that's supposed to happen to my people. So that's a problem. And the solution is, stop doing all that stuff, which is what Nehemiah does. Anyone ever seen the Mad TV, old Bob Newhart-like sketch, where he just keeps saying, stop it, to the woman who comes in for counseling? It's hilarious. It's really funny. She comes in with all these problems, and it's like laying out her heart. And he was like, okay, here's what I want you to do. Write this down on a piece of paper. Stop it. Like, it's hilarious, but, but it's funny. Essentially, that's what's happening here. Nehemiah's like, hey, all you people doing this stuff, stop it. Just stop what you're doing, right? And so it really is that, that neat and tidy. But on a deeper level, I think it's important that we understand why this mattered to God. 
and why this matters to us. And I think what we'll see, uh, just unpacking this a little bit, is that any genuine, any genuine move of God, uh, any genuine move among God's people will be accompanied with a degree of compassion and conviction. Any genuine move of God is going to have to be accompanied by compassion and conviction. What I mean by compassion is compassion for the people that God loves. And what I mean by conviction is where we value what God values. Love who God loves, value what God values. That's compassion and conviction in a nutshell. And so we're going to talk about how that relates to this story and beyond. Okay, so again, the problem here in this story is that, um, as we've looked at already, we've got this group of people who have been working on the wall. And in order to do that, they've had to make some great sacrifices. That means they haven't been able to work their own fields or care for their own flocks. And so they've committed, they've sacrificed greatly for the effort of rebuilding this wall around Jerusalem. But as they've done so, it's actually caused a great problem. Now they don't have enough food, and apparently there's also a famine in the land. So there's this, there's this great need. And so what happens is what happens everywhere is people who have begin to exploit people who do not have. This is, this is just what happens. It doesn't matter what culture you're talking about at any point in time in history, it is kind of built into the sinful nature of humanity to prey on people in this way. Like, it, it, it's, it's just what happens. And so that's exactly what happens. People begin to start lending each other, lending money, and then charging interest for the money they lend. And then when they can't pay the debt, they say, okay, now your farm is mine. And if they can't give that up, they say, okay, now your children are mine. And this is something explicitly outlawed in the law for God's people. This was a huge no-no. This is not what you're supposed to do. And this is a big deal in the story of God. Over and over again, both in the law and then later in the prophets, we hear warning after warning about the exploitation of people who are in need, about the exploitation of the poor, about, uh, the, about the need to, to make sure that our holiness not only includes the way that, um, that uh, we, we do certain things uh, and, and worship God, but our holiness should also include the way that we treat people and making sure that we don't oppress people. Uh, I, this, for me, was an incredible revelation. I grew up in a church that was a holiness church where I was taught my whole life about the way you should dress, and the way you should talk, and what you should look at, and what you should, should look at, what you should do with your body, and not do with your body, and all these other things. And not one time that I recall that I ever hear anyone from up front talk about God's standard of holiness is that we also make sure we care for the poor. And this really messed with me. Because when I was in college and I was studying the prophets of the Old Testament, I was like, oh my gosh, on every page God is getting after his people because they're exploiting the poor. This is not Okay. And it really messed with me because I was like, where has this holiness been this whole entire time? Not because God doesn't care about the other stuff, but the thing that people are most in trouble about are they worship other gods and they exploit the poor. And oftentimes those things are combined. That's like big, big no-no. Worshiping other God and exploiting the poor. This is like, this is huge. So you can think of passages in the Old Testament like in Isaiah where it's like, I don't care about your fasts and I don't care about religious festivals. There are people who are hungry among you and you're not taking care of them. So this is a really big deal for God. Actually, isn't it interesting that Nehemiah here in this passage actually brings this up? Like, don't you realize you're about to invite the reproach of God on you? And not only that, you will be despised by the Gentiles. So the nations around us should be looking at you and saying, look at how God's people are blessed 
and how they take care of each other. But instead, the way you're treating each other, what the Gentiles in all these other countries are going to go, yeah, those people are no different than the rest of us. That should be a little bit of a sobering reminder of how important this is to God. And this continues all the way up through the book of Acts. So one of the very first big decisions the church has to make in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 6. The church has been growing by leaps and bounds. There are thousands of thousands. The church goes from 120 people up in an upper room to now three to 5,000 or more now by Acts chapter 6. And what they recognize is all this incredible ministry stuff we've been doing, we realize we've been neglecting feeding the orphans and the widows among us. We've got to figure this thing out. And so the church gets together, and it's the first time they make this decision about kind of the division of labor, who's going to do what. And they appoint people for ministry to make sure that they're caring for the poor among them. This is a really big deal. It's a big deal in the New Testament, too, that God would want us to be a people of compassion. And we can fast forward that this is still a big deal to God. It's still a part of the heart of God. And we have not, the people of God have not always gotten this right. Uh, we've certainly messed it up. But it is in the very heart of God. And oftentimes the church and the people of God have gotten it right. I just want to mention this right now because so much time the church gets such bad press. Let's give it a little bit of good press. Do you know that hospitals exist? Because Christians along the way read about God's care for the poor and that these people can't care for themselves. We got to step in and do something. Do you know that orphanages exist? Because Christians said God cares for the orphan. We've got to step up our game and do this. Now, slavery in parts exists because of some things that Christians did in the, in the in misunderstanding and misreading scripture. But do you know that slavery, as we knew it, the, the, the Atlantic trade slave, uh, slave trade, ended because Christians had a conviction about this. We should not read the story of William Wil Wilberforce. That does not happen if Christians don't go, this is not right. We're not doing this. There were other practices, pagan practices, pedophilia and this other kind of stuff, that the reason why that doesn't happen now is because the church said, we will not exploit people. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but God's moral idea rests within his people. Right. And we don't have to be shy about that. We don't get it right, but God's calling us constantly to be reminded of who, who it is that we're supposed to be. And we're never supposed to be people who take advantage and exploit people, ever. And so part of this is a compassion for the poor. So the solution that Nehemiah has is basically, give it back. Everything that you've taken, everything that these people have, like, you, you have to give it back. And actually, if you've collected any interest, you're going to give this back too. Whatever wine you've taken, whatever fields you've taken, you've got to give it back. It's, it's amazing. If we actually see this principle in the disciples of Jesus in the New Testament, when the tax collectors come to know Jesus, and they're like, everything we've taken from you, we're giving it back, and we're giving you back more of. You start to realize that the Old Testament and New Testament are connected. We have this idea that sometimes God was one way in the Old Testament and a different way in the New Testament. It's not true. It's not true at all. We actually start to see, uh, we, we see it more clearly, I think, sometimes because we were able to see a compelling vision of what Jesus is and what his people were able to be. So Nehemiah makes all the people give it back, but then Nehemiah takes it a step further as the governor of this region, as the person appointed by this King Xerxes over the region, he could have been taxing the people. That's what he goes into at the end. Like, I, well, so the governors before me began to tax the people extra so that I could live this lavish lifestyle. 
And Nehemiah says, we didn't do that. Actually, instead of doing that, what I began to do was use my own resources to be a blessing to the people. And so I began to invite people, 150 people or more, on a regular basis to come to my table, and I began to feed them. That's awesome, guys. So he does not only, he doesn't only not oppress the people, he takes on the lead of compassion, so I will be a compassionate person. And he not only pushed for corporate reform, because it's one thing to say, all you guys, you should all change. Nehemiah says, I'm going to do it too. I'm no longer going to lend to people, and I'm going to open up my own, my own home. Corporate reform is one thing, but personal sacrifice is totally different. This has to be our posture too. Not simply saying, oh, that's not right that people do that, but actually stepping in and saying, it's not right, and I will do something to make it right. That's, that's biblical justice. That's biblical mercy. It's saying it's not right, and I'm not just going to talk about how it's not right. I'm going to actually step into it to make it right. So let me just say as clear as I possibly can without going into a whole series of why God loves the poor, that genuine service to the poor must be a concern of every move of God. It has to be. And actually what we see if we look at the different revivals throughout history, they're always coincide where a church decides that we are going to care for people who are hurting and exploited. You go, go through all the great revivals of history and you'll see it over and over again. It's like the church gets reawakened not only to the power of the Holy Spirit or the power of some moral feeling, but the power of how God loves the poor. And so it's one of the ways we can tell you a genuine move of God from a not a genuine move of God. Actually, here in the story, this didn't have to happen. They could have continued to oppress the people like every other nation around them did. Guys, because that's how you build a nation. Especially in the ancient world, the way you build a nation is you oppress people and you build it on their backs so the king and the people in power have more and more and more. But God explicitly said, my people are not supposed to be like this. God actually warned his people in the Old Testament that this is what could happen if they appointed a king. Do you remember the story? Like, so what happens in, in the story in the book of 1 Samuel is all the people are looking around at the surrounding nations going, all these other people, they have kings. We want a king. And God says, okay, you can have a king, but here's what's going to happen. They're going to conscript your ar- people into your army, and they're going to take your horses, and they're going to build more and more wealth for them. Guess what happens in the Old Testament? Exactly that thing, Right? Even someone as great and wise as Solomon, like Solomon builds this elaborate house of God, this incredible temple. But if you read between the lines in the story of Solomon, what Solomon is doing is building his own wealth and harem alongside of this great thing that he's doing for God. And it does it over and over again. And so eventually that's the thing that collapses the whole kingdom. That's why the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah absolutely fall because these kings were doing stuff that they weren't supposed to be doing. And so this nation was not supposed to be like that. They weren't supposed to be like the nations around them. And so they're flipping things. And so every move, genuine move of God should have a genuine concern for the poor. But I would press it even further to say every household that's called by the name of Jesus should also have a genuine care and concern for the poor. This shouldn't be something for certain Christians in the body. This is something for every Christian in every house in the body. This isn't like something that we opt in, like, well, those people work with the poor, these people don't. No. Like, we all have a responsibility to be, to be concerned for the poor. And I don't want a move of God that's not genuine. And so the move of God that I think is genuine is one that has some care and concern 
for the poor. And I see in this model, in this story, a model to help guide us a little bit in what this looks like, that we've got to have compassion and that we've got to have conviction. Conviction is a firmly held belief about something. Like I said, it's about valuing what God values. And in this story, conviction looks like God said that we should not charge interest to people and exploit them. God has a value, and we must share that value. And we see Nehemiah and the people of God embodying this, this conviction. This is, what, this is what God says. This is what his word says. So this is what we, we should do. And convictions are really important. We're meant to be a people of convictions, a people of firmly held beliefs. That's who God has called us to be. So 1 Timothy 4, 16, he, uh, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, guard your way of life and your doctrine. Another word for that could be convictions. Closely. Persevere in them because by them you will save yourself and others. It is very important to have convictions. Like it, because if you don't, you're like you don't have an anchor. You're tossed around by the winds and the waves. That's not how we're supposed to, we're supposed to live with convictions. And those convictions aren't just about the things we believe up here. They're also about the ways we're committed to live our life. It's your, guards your life and doctrine closely. Man, there are certain parts of the church that think it's only the doctrine part. May it never be here. May it never be that we can sign on a doctrinal statement, but then our life does not reflect the life of Christ. That's foolishness. It's silliness. That's empty and dead religion. It's whitewashed tombs. Never. Like, we, we should have the living, we have the living, breathing God living inside of us. And that what that means is that we should look like him. That was his heart for his people back then. It's his heart for now. Guess what? God doesn't live in that temple anymore. He lives in you, the temple of God right now. And so you have a river of life flowing out of you that can be a refreshing water to the poor. So we've got to have a conviction about this. James 1, uh, 12, religion that, our, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to... <clears throat> And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's conviction. That's conviction. I mean, this, this is what it's about. Like, we've got to have a conviction about these things. But convictions on their own are not good enough. Because convictions on their own can simply lead to just being an angry person. Who thinks that they know everything and are right all the time. Anyone? Yeah? And it actually, it's interesting. Nehemiah says, I think there's a, I, I'm, I'm reading into the text a little bit here, okay? But it's interesting. If we go back up to um, verse 6, when I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. Like, the, it could have been full stop, and then Nehemiah could have gone on a tirade, which by, he's going to do by the end of the book, by the way. By the end of the book, Nehemiah has lost his mind. He's beating people up and pulling people's hairs out. But at least here... He's in a place where he's doing something different. It says he was angry, but then the very next line, but I pondered them in my mind. And there's a, a few different translations, but basically it's like, I took counsel with myself is one translation. I began to have restraint about this is what I had. So it's one thing to have conviction, but if we're not careful, conviction can just make us angry people. Conviction can turn into legalism. It can turn into follow all the rules and do all the right things. Here's a bunch of rules to follow. Or worse, conviction like this can actually not only be, I got to follow all the rules, but now I'm going to set up a system where you have to follow all the rules too. 
That's what happens if we only have convictions. It turns people into Pharisees. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and says, look, you're zealous, but you're zealous about the wrong things. It's a good thing that you're zealous. It's a good thing that your standard is holiness. But you've got it all wrong. So we don't want that. So conviction must be married to compassion. Conviction has to be married to compassion. It's not simply about right and wrong, but about being moved and motivated by love and care and concern for the people that God loves. If we only have conviction, people can become causes. Compassion moves us to see people as image bearers of God who he loves. And that's a very different kind of thing. God doesn't need you to have a cause. He needs you to love people. The New Testament is one in which we are compelled by love. I'm constantly, I don't know about you guys, but I'm constantly checking my motivations. Is this, am I, what's my motivation here? Am I being compelled by love to say or do this? Am I being compelled by love to serve this person this way, or is it just a have to? Like, am I being compelled by love to have this confrontational conversation right now, or am I just doing this because I think it's the right thing to do? Or am I, I'm going to poke at a bear here, or am I doing it because I'm afraid of something? I'm afraid of losing something. I'm afraid of something that I value being trampled on. See, Nehemiah is moved with compassion. And the way you can tell with that is because he takes it upon himself to not just have a reform movement, not just tell everybody all the things that they need to do, but to personally open up his home and slaughter his own animals and feed people his own chickens and give them his own wine. That's one of the ways you can tell a big difference between someone who's just championing a conviction versus someone who has genuine compassion is will they own it? Will they put their money where their mouth is, so to speak? So he not only moves the leaders, but he makes great personal sacrifice to help people who are hurting. But the flip side of that is that compassion without conviction is not good either. Compassion without conviction means we can have a momentary fleeting feeling of compassion, but it's not sustainable. We actually can't produce change. We actually can't come alongside someone and, and help them because it's based off what I'm feeling in the moment. Do you see the difference? Compassion that's, that's left, that leaves conviction behind is based off how I feel in the moment. And that should never be the reason why we care for people and love people well. It should be based off of conviction. It should be rooted in, no, this is what God has called us to do. And then married with the being moved with compassion. So Jesus does things many times where it says he was moved with compassion and then he did X, Right? And here's what I love about Jesus. Sometimes when Jesus is moved with compassion, he teaches people. I love that. Like there's a, there's a time where it says that Jesus was moved with compassion because he saw the people and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them. That's cool. And then there are other times where Jesus was moved with compassion and that compassionate response was praying for healing, right? So I, I think what that teaches me is to like that a compassionate response isn't the same every single time. Well, if, that's, if I don't have convictions that my top priority is, Father, what do you want to do here? Then I'm always going to be moved around by the winds and the waves. I'm always going to be fickle in that. But, but I've got to be dialed into, Father, what's your heart here? What is, it, what is it that you want to do in the life of this person? I mean, let's make it really practical. There have been times, I'm sure you have been too, where someone has maybe approached you or you saw a need, and there was an opportunity, for, for example, to help someone else financially, Right? 
there are times where that's absolutely the right thing to do. It is the compassionate and the right conviction thing to do in that moment. And then there are times where you can have the discernment to say, this is actually going to hurt this person if I do this, rather than help them. Does that make sense? And then there are times where it's like, I want to help, like where I feel like I don't want to help this person. Because let's just be honest, my heart is ugly. And I would like to sometimes believe that I'm higher than this, that I'm not. That sometimes my level of compassion is often married to my feelings about a person. Come on, you know what too, right? And I need to be able to have, be attuned to the Holy Spirit to say, it doesn't matter what you feel, you're going to help this person anyway. That only comes if your conviction is whatever God says is what goes. Does that make sense? doesn't matter how I feel about it. What matters is God said do it, so I do it, right? But the sweet spot is when we put together compassion and conviction. You guys okay? We're still good? I'm still your pastor? Okay, we're fine? All right, good. So the other thing with compassion is when we leave behind conviction, if we don't, if we don't put them together, it can lead to license. So on the one hand, it's a legalism when we only have conviction. On the other hand, it's license where I just do whatever you want to do. We don't want that either. Jesus came and was full of grace and truth. So what, what, if we only have conviction, that means we only operate in truth and we leave grace behind. If we only operate in compassion, what it means is that we try to offer grace and we leave truth behind. And doggone it, the church has been doing that for far too long. Let's stop this madness. We can have deeply held convictions and deeply held compassion. We can do this because Jesus did. I I know it's possible. I know it's possible because the church did. What a beautiful picture in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 of of, of a group of people bonding together. and There were no needs among them. They were living out what this should have been. And you know the difference? The Holy Spirit was dwelling among these believers. I might start preaching here in a second. You guys are like, stop though. I'm trying to get out of here. We just don't have to leave these things behind. We can operate in, in deep conviction and with deep compassion. We can be moved with compassion and rooted in conviction. And we don't have to. And this doesn't just only apply to how we deal with the poor and how we care and love for the poor. It applies to everything as we interact with the world. So this is one of the top priorities on our prayer list right now that we pray for throughout the week. God, help us to make sure we walk in compassion and conviction as we engage with the world. Because there's a temptation to feel like pulled in one direction or the other, and we don't have to. We don't have to. That is the world setting the agenda for us. And we don't have to get, we don't have to get into that. But the way that we care and love for the poor and the hurting among us can only happen if we, if we really walk with conviction and we walk with compassion. Rob, you can come up and play for a second. Now, this message is not terribly practical. I know that. Part of the reason for it is I'm trying to lay a framework and a groundwork for where I think God has for us. I want to tell you, friends, when our... When our friends come, and pull their cars up at big table every week, it is one of the greatest honors and privilege to know the stories of these individuals. Last week, someone shared a story with us that a guy who comes through the um, comes to big table fairly frequently. Um, we hadn't seen him in a little while, and he was struggling with some suicidal thoughts. 
and they were very, very concerned. And so this, this woman said, I know you guys will pray. Will you please, please pray? And so we prayed. The next day, things began to turn around for him. She just shared that with us this week. He got a job the next day. Some other things in his life started to fall around. All of a sudden, this guy now has hope he didn't have. Man. Yes, Susan. Yes, we should be flat crafting. We have the light of the world. We have the hope of everyone. And when we give out food at Big Table, it's not about food. It is and it isn't all at one time. Like, it's just, it's an amazing, incredible thing to be able to bless people who have need. So when when I look at these folks coming through the line to pick up food now at our food pantry, I don't see people I'm serving. I see the future of the church. I see Isaiah 61 beginning to live out, where it's the restored people who become the rebuilders. Man, and that gets me excited for who we are as a church. Because it's not that we are the ones in power and we have all the resources and all the needs. It's that we have something that we've been freely given and we should be freely giving it away as well. So I want to ask you just a really pointed question. One, are you operating in compassion and conviction in your life? If you were to just do a little inventory, just say, am I operating from both compassion and conviction? And secondly, how are you serving the poor? How are you serving the poor? Not everybody has to do it in the same way. but I want that pure and undefiled religion that James is talking about. So we should all be able to know, I know I'm serving the poor by X. Sometimes, just to be clear, the poor are people who are actually financially poor. Like, I don't have anything. I also know some really wealthy people who feel like they have all the resources in the world but are absolutely broken and poor in spirit. I don't really care as long as you're serving the poor, however they're poor. I'm not sure that the Lord even cares so much. Now, here's the thing I don't want us to do is I don't want us just to assume that because we're serving someone, we're serving the poor. Like, we really need to know. I I really think this is important for us to have a conviction about this so that we can really have true compassion. So I want to leave you with thinking about those, those two questions. Are you operating from compassion and conviction? And are you serving the poor? And the last one is I want you to pray on behalf of our church and behalf of me. How can we better serve the poor? How can we humble ourselves and get low? How can we make sure in our community that there is no child that doesn't have a bed to sleep on in our community because there are kids right now in our community that don't have beds to sleep on. How can we make sure that to the best of our ability, nobody goes hungry, that people get the medical care that they need, that people aren't submitting themselves to dangerous 
conditions in their households. Do you know how many elderly people in our community have slip and falls that end up being a deadly thing in their life in our community? One of the biggest initiatives right now in Wakanda among the fire department is going into homes and making sure that they do an assessment to make sure that people don't fall, fall and trip over things. Guys, we can do that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we, we, it's great that the fire department's doing it, but what, what if we owned it? And I'm not saying I don't have an answer. I just want us to genuinely pray how we can serve the poor. There are people in prison right now who are hungry for someone to come and share the gospel. Maybe the Lord is sending us. I don't know what it looks like, but I'm going to ask you to pray with us. So Jesus, give us your hands and your feet and make us your hands and your feet to serve those whom you love. Let us walk in humility and a desire to care for people that you so deeply care about. Lord, would you forgive me for selfishness of my time, of my energy, of my resources? Would you forgive me, Lord, of not having compassion at times or not having conviction at other times? And would you forgive us, Lord? And would you renew a right spirit in us about this? Lord, and would we welcome with open arms all those who are lost and hurting, Let them be refreshed, Lord, by your spirit. Let them really know freedom. I see a picture of people like dancing on waves, just absolutely free, stunningly, amazingly free. Lord, let that be us. Let that be in this place, Lord. Please, Lord. Let us be the kind of people that are ready for this. Lord, I pray for a great harvest of souls among the poor. Lord, but let us serve with, with humility and greatness and justice, Lord. Amen.